Hi folks, this is Chad Pfeiffer from HPPodcraft.com. Last week on the show we announced a ransom. We said that if we raised $1,000 in donations, we'd re- Oh, Jesus We said that if we raised $1,000 in donations, we'd release online for all to download a full reading of The Haunter of the Dark featuring Andrew Lehman on the mic. Well, we already reached that goal just this week. It's amazing. Uh, We can't thank the donors enough for their generosity. We're really blown away by it. Here's the thing. It happened a little faster than we thought it would. In fact, we weren't really set to record until this weekend, so it's going to be another week and some change before we release the recording. For now, hold tight, and The Haunter of the Dark will be creeping into your heart very, very soon. In the meantime, ladies and gentlemen, here is The Silver Key featuring guest host Kenneth Hyde. When Randolph Carter was 30, he lost the key to the Gate of Dreams. Prior to that time, he had made up for the prosiness of life by nightly excursions to strange and ancient cities beyond space and lovely, unbelievable garden lands across ethereal seas. But as middle age hardened upon him, he felt these liberties slipping away little by little until at last he was cut off altogether. No more could his galleys sail up the river Okranos, past the gilded spires of Thran, or his elephant caravans tramp through perfumed jungles in Cled, where forgotten palaces with veined ivory columns sleep lovely and unbroken under the moon. Oh. <laughs> I kind of take some issue with middle age hardening upon him in, at the age of 30. <laughs> Come on, man. I'm 35 years old. I don't feel like middle age just hardened on me. Well, you know, people didn't live as long back then, I guess. Uh, or them, uh, they were stuffy New Englanders. Oh, yeah. So the middle age hardened upon them early. <laughs> yeah, it's the weather. <laughs> it's the weather. That was the opening uh, paragraph from H.P. Lovecraft's The Silver Key. I am. That's right. One of your hosts of the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast at hppodcraft.com, Chris Lackey. And I am Chad Pfeiffer. And I am Kenneth Height. Kenneth, he's back. That's right. Welcome to the show. Uh, thanks again for having me. We're glad to have you on this uh, particular story with us. Um, I don't know if... You, uh, Ken, are you yet to middle age? Have you reached this this hardened point of your life? <laughs> there, there is, There's parts of me that are, that are hardened and parts of me that are doughly soft. So <laughs> <laughs> I suspect that they're both caused by middle age, though. Uh, now this uh, the the main character of the story is is Randolph Carter who we've, yeah. we've experienced uh, previously. We've experienced, yeah. Well, <laughs> in, the, in the yeah, he's the uh, titular character in the statement of Randolph Carter. And actually, uh, you know, when we left him there, he was escaping a, a cemetery where his his friend had been lowered into a, a vault and met some terrible end. Yes. Uh, now, Ken. There's some, there's some question about the you know the order of how these stories were actually written. The thing is that as far as I know, and maybe uh, more recent research has you know poked up on that, this story is written in what they say it's early November of 1926. Mm-hmm. But uh, Lovecraft doesn't finish Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath, which is the final Randolph Carter story in terms of order of writing, mm-hmm. until like January of 1927. Mm-hmm. So he writes this kind of in the middle of writing Dream Quest because if you if the, that opening paragraph is obviously his adventures, you know, in unknown Kadath and places thereabouts, the gate of the land of dreams and all the rest of it. Right. The order of composition is is that this happens kind of in the middle of Dream Quest. The chronological part of it, it's statement first, then the Dream Quest and then 
this. The statement first, then the unnameable. Oh, the unnameable, yes. One, yes the in unnameable. which he's playing uh, crazy pranks on his friend in the graveyard. <laughs> a wacky yeah. prank with a demon. <laughs> <laughs> As you do. Randolph seems to be, you know, not having a good go at life right now. It reminds me of like a high schooler or a college student who's going through some different identities, trying on some different looks, you know, trying on some different philosophies. I mean, and he's looking all over for it, you know, all over in the world, but it doesn't really get him much. Wonder had gone away, and he had forgotten that all life is only a set of pictures in the brain, among which there is no difference betwixt those born of real things and those born of inward dreamings and no cause to value the one above the other. Custom had dinned into his ears a superstitious reverence for that which tangibly and physically exists, and it made him secretly ashamed to dwell in visions. Wise men told him his simple fancies were inane and childish, and he believed it because he could see that they might easily be so. What he failed to recall was that the deeds of reality are just as inane and childish and even more absurd because their actors persist in fancying them full of meaning and purpose as the blind cosmos grinds aimlessly on from nothing to something and from something back to nothing again, neither heeding nor knowing the wishes of existence of the minds that flicker for a second now and then in the darkness. That's an amazing passage. I gotta admit, I'd never read this story before we had to research it for this show. And that was my first indication that there was some really deep stuff going on here. Coming off Pikmin's model and then reading this, you know, it's it's kind of a, a bit of a shock. You know, I felt <laughs> like I just jumped into a into a cold pond or something. Right, you know, I, I, uh, um, I try to read these things in book form when I can. So I looked through all of my anthologies and found it in my best of H.P. Lovecraft blood-curdling tales of horror and the macabre. Why would they put this story in that anthology if they're going to call it blood-curdling tales? There's nothing, you know. Yeah, there's nothing blood-curdling in this uh, story at all. I mean, besides the the pain, painfully desperate ennui that gets shot at you, that uh, is, right. some, is somewhat infectious. But I'm, I don't actually feel my blood is being. Uh, curdled. Not only is it uh, not blood curdling, it's barely a story. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> or, or, or barely a tale, I guess. But these, but this, you know, these things that he's communicating. Obviously, this is some stuff that Lovecraft has on the brain, and it just seems like he, you know, needs to kind of get it out. Yeah, this is um, pretty much a snapshot of what Lovecraft is thinking in November of 1926. I mean, this is he comes back from New York. He's uh, miserable. He he feels like a failure. And he sort of, you know, turtles up back in Providence with his aunts, and he, and he writes the silver key. So, you know, everyone goes through and they try and sift the outsider or, or other stories to find these psychological, key, you know, clues to what Lovecraft is thinking. Here he's written it in, you know, in lieu of the first half of the story, basically. Yeah. With his, um... <laughs> yeah, you're right. Once in a while, though, he could not help seeing how shallow, fickle, and meaningless all human aspirations are how emptily our real impulses contrast with those pompous ideals we profess to hold. Then he would have recourse to the polite laughter they had taught him to use against the extravagance and artificiality of dreams. For he saw that the daily life of our world is every inch as extravagant and artificial, and far less worthy of respect because of its poverty and beauty, and its silly reluctance to admit its own lack of reason and purpose. In this way he became a kind of humorist, for he did not see that even humor is empty in a mindless universe devoid of any true standard of consistency or inconsistency. Wow. Man. 
He doesn't even find the big joke funny. Not only does he not find the big joke funny, he discovers philosophically that you can't laugh. And it's worse <laughs> than this just isn't funny. <laughs> it's, yeah. You know, if, if nothing is incongruous, there's nothing funny ever. Right. Actually, yeah. Randolph Carter kind of reminds me of almost every stand-up comedian I've ever met. They, they're they humorists, but deep down they hate everything and nothing is funny. <laughs> <laughs> But I mean, I have to disagree with Randolph on this one, or, or slash Lovecraft, is that I think uh, that there's a lot that's pretty darn funny about existence, even if things get bleak, sometimes that's when things are the funniest. Yeah, well, I think that Randolph doesn't even realize, I, I think Randolph's with you, I mean, he's kind of a humorist, he still finds things funny, he hasn't gotten that there really isn't anything funny at all. <laughs> it's Lovecraft that gets that, not Randolph. When you talk about realism, I just want this to go by without um, uh, mentioning Lovecraft taking an elbow shot against realistic literature there, where he talks about how the common events and emotions of earthly minds are more important than the fantasies of rare and delicate souls. Like, this, is where, this is Lovecraft kicking in the face everyone who's ever said, why are you wasting your time with you know Cthulhu monsters when you should be writing real novels about important things? shop girls uh, being oppressed by the man or whatever. Right, exactly. Right, right. Yeah, that's like his dig at Sherwood Anderson or one of these writers. Mm -hmm. Or Theodore Dreiser. Yeah, yeah. It's a common theme that we haven't seen for a while in Lovecraft about the, you know, the very sensitive artists. He hasn't really talked about that in the last few stories. Yeah, when, we, when, I, when I read the, uh, the first paragraph of this and he was name dropping all these silly lands and, and weird names, I was like, oh no, this again? <laughs> but I, I think that as, as you get into it, it does reveal a, a sort of sophistication of thought that maybe wasn't there when he was writing Oh yeah, The White Ship or Silipheus or one of these earlier dream stories. I, I think a lot of it is that this is also when he's finally completely thrown away his notion that decadence is the way to write weird fiction. Throughout the whole time, he's he's either trying to be Poe or he's trying to be one of the Europeans who's trying to be Poe. Mm -hmm. Right. And then with Pickman's model, that right before this, is really his rejection. I mean, Pickman is a sensitive artist who can see things that no one else can see, but it's because there are real horrible ghouls that live underneath Boston, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. And his art style is not this decadent style that you get in Hypnos or in um, uh, The Hound, his art style is hyper-realistic, mm -hmm. which is, is entirely different. So, the, the, you know, Pickman's model is, is Lovecraft kicking the decadent model to the curb, and then as we go later into The Silver Key, we'll see that Randolph Carter also attempts to become a decadent, and this course, but that too, guess what? Spoiler alert, is empty and valueless. Uh, mm -hmm. So Randolph tries to go to religion to try and find some kind of meaning and purpose, uh, you know, beauty mm -hmm. in existence. But of course, you know, that totally falls flat for him and then he gets to people who've kind of who feel proud of themselves because they've thrown off those old myths but then he nails these guys too <laughs> you right. know warped and bigoted with preconceived delusions of justice freedom and consistency they cast off the old lore and the old ways with the old beliefs nor ever stop to think that that lore and those ways were the sole makers of their present thoughts and judgments and the sole guides and standards in a meaningless universe without fixed aims or stable points of reference. Having lost these artificial settings, their lives grew void of direction and dramatic interest, till at length they strove to drown their ennui in bustle and pretended usefulness, noise and excitement, barbaric display, and animal sensation. It's funny how somebody will throw off religion, but they have an intense morality that's probably shaped by the tradition that religion brought to their culture. Right. This is Lovecraft saying that people who are consciously rebelling against society, you know, and, and this is where he's making fun of Frank Belknap Long and the other the Marxists that he knows, 
are basically um, uh, they're only doing that because they um, are bored with re- with rebellion, and so they yeah. have to make up something. <laughs> no, ne- never could they realize that their brute foundations were as shifting and contradictory as the gods of their elders. So he's mm-hmm. basically saying no, no, no reaction to to tradition makes any sense. Either, that not sort of anarchy and not um, uh, Marxism and not anyone who rejects God. That they're all just doing it because they're they're bored or they're or they're too foolish to realize that they're doing it in the name of something that also doesn't exist. Yeah, that, yes. that even, <laughs> even those things are pointless. All their meaning is just completely fiction. And uh, the only place that you can find any truth and any real purpose is in the universe of dreams. That's right. <laughs> yeah. So he goes on to talk about how these dream places are the only thing that ever made him feel alive and real. He couldn't find anything. Even when he was at war, it didn't make him feel anything. Yeah, that's crazy. The Great War stirred him a little. A little? <laughs> yeah, wow. I mean, that's a yawning yeah. artist if I've ever heard one. Yeah, but those dreams, those were the things that were important. And nobody ever understood that stuff except for his grandfather and his great uncle. But they right. were dead. Yeah, they might say that war is what built their city of dreams you know you, you get people like ambrose bierce who come back from uh, the civil war and are full of this sort of black ironic uh, you know not even just on we but hatred of of the universe the yeah. way that uh, randolph carter begins before the war right you almost get the sense that he's in in the, in the sense of the story he's suffered his war wound well before going to war and that any sort of trauma he suffers there is trivial compared to the trauma of forgetting how to get through the gates of deeper slumber or whatever. Mm. Sounds unlikely to me, but what do I know? <laughs> <laughs> from, from that, he tries to write. He thinks maybe, you know, by getting these ideas out and fictionalizing and, and using his past dream experiences to write about, it's going to give him some sort of meaning and purpose because he does find those dreams so important to him. But again, nothing. It, it doesn't work for him. I think it's amazing that he uh, he learns how to write for the herd, right? <laughs> his novel, he wrote some old novels and they didn't do so well, probably because they were about stuff like this story and so he figures out how to write his twilight or his harry potter or whatever it is <laughs> um but i love it he said you know they're very graceful novels in which he urbanely laughed at the dreams he lightly sketched so you know he <laughs> he, he i don't know i think that he he's an ironic funny humorist kind of writer that people probably you know the npr crowd really appreciates but he hates it you know he finds that it's just you know ridiculous and he he knows there's a certain set of things that people are going to respond to and he's just pushing buttons i really thought that passage was interesting oh yeah yeah. well because you see that he has this professional life uh, uh, up till here he's just somebody who you know carries cord to cemeteries and sits around and hates right. things but <laughs> to know that he actually had a career trajectory of some point of some kind i find really interesting for him this writing thing didn't it it doesn't fulfill him it doesn't give him that purpose even though he's successful and he's got this career it still leaves him empty so then he starts looking in kind of darker corners he starts looking into the bizarre and the strange and occultism yeah generally he finds that the occult world is just as bad as the scientific world yeah well it's worse even because they don't have the um you know at least science has the slender palliative of truth to redeem it right yeah exactly (laughs) phrase yeah that's a good um, one no such thing in the occult you know it's just a bunch of weirdos with dowsing rods and crystals and stuff like that. Exactly. But then he ends up finding Harley Warren. Once he heard of a man in the South who was shunned and feared for the blasphemous things he read in prehistoric books and clay tablets smuggled from India and Arabia. Him he visited, living with him and sharing his studies for seven years till horror overtook them one midnight in an unknown and archaic graveyard and only one emerged where two had entered. Then he went back to Arkham 
the terrible witch-haunted old town of his forefathers in New England, and at experiences in the dark amidst the hoary willows and tottering gambrel roofs, which made him seal forever certain pages in the diary of a wild-minded ancestor. But these horrors took him only to the edge of reality, and were not of the true dream country he had known in youth, so that at fifty he despaired of any rest or contentment in a world grown too busy for beauty and too shrewd to dream. So, one, he's older now. He's fifty at this point. Yeah, elderly. Yeah, he's... Well, <laughs> he's elderly. But, I mean, the first part of that passage was him talking about Horley Warren from the statement of Randall Carter, and the second part is the unnameable? Yeah. You know, he knew the whole story of the unnameable because he had the uh, the diary of, a, of his ancestor. Right. Who, that's so cool when you get to that passage. I mean, it, it was rewarding for me having read all those stories to see yeah. the referenced. And, and this is probably the first time that Lovecraft has really made a direct play uh, in any of his stories to kind of introduce a continuity of some kind. I, I kind of nerded out when I read that passage, I have to say. Yep, there you go. Nerded out. Yeah. Speaking <laughs> <laughs> of nerding out, of course, the first thing that occurred to me when I read it, I mean, even as a, as a, as a teenager... I read it. I said, "Hold on, seven years after a minimum of seven years after World War One is when, according to this, Harley Warren disappears." But the statement of Randolph Carter is written in 1919. Mm. Yeah, wait a minute. Yeah. So the so the timing is now completely you know thrown off. You know this this is internally inconsistent. What are you trying to pull here, Lovecraft? <laughs> oh. Yeah, he's got to do some retconning. This is ridiculous. That's right. <laughs> so that was Golden Age Randolph Carter. <laughs> <laughs> You got this liquid from the guy in South America that was supposedly was going to take him on to the next world. I thought it was just some kind of suicide poison or something. Yeah. But he decides not to do that. You know, he holds on to it and he just kind of finds that reflecting on his youth and the time when he was younger kind of gives him a comfort. So one night as he goes off to sleep, he kind of has a a dream of, of his grandfather. Then one night, his grandfather reminded him of a key. The gray old scholar, as vivid as in life, spoke long and earnestly of their ancient line, and of the strange visions of the delicate and sensitive men who composed it. He spoke of the flame-eyed crusader, who learnt wild secrets of the Saracens that held him captive, and of the first Sir Randolph Carter, who studied magic when Elizabeth was queen. He spoke, too, of that Edmund Carter, who had just escaped hanging in the Salem witchcraft and who had placed in an antique box a great silver key handed down from his ancestors. Before Carter awaked, the gentle visitant had told him where to find that box, that carved oak box of archaic wonder whose grotesque lid no hand had raised for two centuries. It's a whole family of adventurers. Yeah, so he's from a line of sensitive... <laughs> of nut jobs. So maybe this is going to be his ticket out of here, this key. Well, this is where we start, you know, we actually get to the story now. Many of these paragraphs that sort of just describe what Lovecraft's on about, I mean, what he's thinking about. And now we actually get to his story. When he wakes up, he goes and he looks up in the attic, I believe, and finds and finds this box. Inside, wrapped in a discolored parchment, was a huge key of tarnished silver covered with cryptical arabesques. But of any legible explanation, there was none. The parchment was voluminous and held only the strange hieroglyphs of an unknown tongue written with an antique reed. 
Carter recognized the characters as those he had seen on a certain papyrus scroll belonging to that terrible scholar of the South, who had vanished one midnight in a nameless cemetery. The man had always shivered when he read this scroll, and Carter shivered now. He finds this key, and it's wrapped in this, this parchment that has got these ancient symbols that he had seen before with Harley Warren. It's funny to me that Harley Warren sort of treated Randolph as his sidekick or assistant. I think when we did that show, we kind of figured out that really he just brought him around so he could haul stuff. <laughs> and uh, it's nice to say, to figure out, well, actually, you know, Randolph's got quite a bit going on himself, you know. Carter takes this key and he cleans it up. He figures, oh, well, I'm going to take this key and then go to sleep. And then I'll, I'll be able to go back to these magical dreamlands, but nothing. It doesn't work out for him. But he does get kind of this pull that, you know, this kind of this idea that he needs to go back to where he's from, his ancestral home near Arkham and the Miskatonic River. Right. He's been dressing up his house to look like things did when he was young. Yes. He doesn't want to know why he does it, but he jumps in the car. He drives out there to, uh, now is it in Arkham or Kingsport? I think it's kind of on a, on a hill between Kingsport and Arkham because he can kind of see both of them. And then he doesn't even take his car up there because uh, when he's driving, he feels like it doesn't belong. You know, it was, there, wasn't, there wasn't motors there before, is what he says. So he just kind of leaves his car and then he goes and walks into the forest. And then this is the part that it's a little strange. He runs into, he runs into somebody or he has a voice. Through his puzzlement, a voice piped and he started again at its familiarity after long years. Old Benajah Corey had been his Uncle Christopher's hired man and was aged even in those far-off times of his boyhood visits. Now he must be well over a hundred, but that piping voice could come from no one else. He could distinguish no words, yet the tone was haunting and unmistakable. To think that old Benegy should still be alive. Mr. Randy, Mr. Randy, where be ye? You want to scare your Aunt Marty plumb to death? Ain't she told you to keep nigh the place in the afternoon and get back for dark? Randy! Randy! He's the beatenest boy for running off in the woods I ever see. Half the time a settin' moonin' around that snake den in the upper timber lot. Hey, you! Randy! I think what happens is as he walks through those woods, it's just sort of a you know mystical transformation into his youth. Okay. You know, he comes out on the other side as a, as a boy, and he's just kind of traveled back to his youth. It's not what real. What the heck kind of accent is that? I don't know what kind of accent this is supposed to be. Is it like kind of a, a hill? I, I think it's supposed to be sort of not just rural Massachusetts, but rural Massachusetts from 100 years ago or from you know, generations earlier, right? Because Vantage Corey is old in the 1880s or whenever Randolph Carter is, is a kid. So if he's old in the 1880s, he would have learned to speak in like the 18-teens or 1820s. Right. It's, it's a century old rural dialect and you know it, it's like the the um uh, the, the dunwich people or um the guy in the uh, picture in the house just this antiquated it's hard to read <laughs> That's it's, all I know. <laughs> it is and hard to speak so uh yeah. my aunt, uh holt who's uh who's our reader this week we've i forgot to thank him at the top of the show uh good job reading that yeah he really i mean i to, to take a line like he's the beatenest boy for running off in the woods and and make it actually sound meaningful is, is really incredible. <laughs> Lance is a very talented guy. So running into this character from his past, this old, this old guy, he goes up to goes up to the house and his Aunt Martha is there and his Uncle Chris. And he kind of remembers that there was, you know, his Uncle Chris would tell him these stories about this box. And every time he would talk, try and talk to him about it, his Aunt Martha would kind of shut him up. He didn't remember it before, but now he 
he does remember it now that he's kind of back in this time. He he goes into the house and he's with his his aunt and his uncle again and they eat supper and then he he goes up to bed and he doesn't really you know sleep. He says this this strange thing that he sometimes dream better when awake, and he uh, wanted to use that key. So he was hope by staying awake he was hoping to use the key or something, which seemed like a very kind of confusing line for me. Here's the thing, right? It's the line before he ate his supper in silence and protested only when bedtime came. This is his you know now ten year old mind saying. I dream better when I'm awake, and I want to play with my new silver key that I just got. Oh, I see. Yeah, he just doesn't want to go to bed. I understand now. Okay. One of those, you know, little uh, things that, uh, as Lovecraft is writing it, Randolph Carter gets more and more childlike. I mean, you have his pocket telescope. He has a blouse pocket now, which means that he's dressed in sort of a a child's nightshirt, not in a grown man's clothing. He, He walks up there, and suddenly we shift in time and place. And then he actually himself turns into his his boyhood self. I don't know. I, I thought it, I thought it flowed kind of in an interesting way because that is dream logic. That's sort of how it happens. I have dreams all the time where people who've been dead for years will will be in the dream, and I'll just go, oh, okay. But I, I do have to admit, I was a little confused in this part of of what exactly was going on. Like this dream logic was, I was having a little trouble following it. I feel like if this happened sooner in the story, it wouldn't be as difficult to process. But because you've got a couple of pages of heavy philosophical discussion before we do this once you get to it you go oh wait i'm reading that kind of story now it's a strange transition there's a little bit of foreshadowing when he sees the old um, congregational church on central hill in kingsport that he remembers having been torn down yeah right yeah, so right. so you have a, a little twig that this is going to be that up oh, you, you know either kingsport is up to its old creepy tricks again or something else is going on so anyway, little Randolph Carter or adult Randolph Carter who is remembering being a child or what have you actually goes to sleep and then wakes up in the morning, has breakfast, and then he just ventures off out into the woods. And then he finds these druid, these monoliths that are in this sacred grove. At these druid monoliths, this is where things really happen. Then he came to the strange cave in the forest slope, the dreaded snake den which country folk shunned and away from which Benijah had warned him again and again. It was deep, far deeper than anyone but Randolph suspected, for the boy had found a fissure in the farthermost black corner that led to a loftier grotto beyond, a haunting, sepulchral place whose granite walls held a curious illusion of conscious artifice. On this occasion he crawled in as usual, lighting his way with matches filched from the sitting-room match-safe and edging through the final crevice with an eagerness hard to explain even to himself. He could not tell why he approached the farther wall so confidently, or why he instinctively drew forth a great silver key as he did so. But on he went, and when he danced back to the house that night, he offered no excuses for his lateness, nor heeded in the least the reproofs he gained for ignoring the noontide dinner horn altogether. Somehow, even though this didn't happen in the past because he found this key which hadn't been touched for a hundred years, somehow his young dream self went into this old druid ruins and stuck the key in somewhere and unlocked something. Yeah, but basically the, the game of dreams. Something happened and he goes skipping back to the house, happy as a, well, as a schoolboy, actually. But then the, the story kind of takes a break at this point and, and, mm-hmm. and Carter is talked about in, in the past tense. We move into this new portion of the story where we have the narrator kind of revealing himself a little bit. Right. It made me wonder who this, who this character is, actually. I just named him Steve in my head. <laughs> <laughs> Randolph kind of gets himself into a little sort of time loop of some kind here. Yeah. Right? 
Yeah, exactly. He goes back, he opens the gate of dreams, and then he grows up and relives all of the same experiences, but because he's been there before, he has a little bit of prophetic vision about all of it. In subsequent decades, as new inventions, new names, and new events appeared one by one in the book of history, people would now and then recall wonderingly how Carter had years before let fall some careless word of undoubted connection with what was then far in the future. He did not himself understand these words, or know why certain things made him feel certain emotions, but fancied that some unremembered dream must be responsible. It was as early as 1897 that he turned pale when some traveler mentioned the French town of Belleoyon-Santerre, and friends remembered it when he was almost mortally wounded there in 1916 while serving with the Foreign Legion in the Great War. So he has knowledge of these things before they happen. Right, Because right. he's already lived them. Now, here's my question for you guys. Is this a change, or was the Randolph Carter we met at the beginning of the story, had he, I mean, was he already in this sort of loop? Right. I, that's what I was wondering myself, too. I didn't know if that, that somehow in the future he went back in time and changed things, or if this has, was as his life always was. Right. Is he going to lose the key again at 30? go through all the same changes and then find it again and then go back. And this is something that's just going to keep repeating. I, I think uh, for Lovecraft, it, it almost has to be inevitable, right? That there, that there can't be any sort of human action that changes things because then that violates the entire first several paragraphs of the story. Mm -hmm. he's, he's playing out the predestined part of the story in which he gets jaded and bitter and then has the vision and finds the key, takes it back, turns back into his younger self, opens the gate of dreams, the key we're given to understand vanishes in that grotto and reappears in the box, which he then opens when he's 50. Right. So he's in a 40-year time loop. Crazy. Yeah. <laughs> it's crazy, but it's, um, you know, it really just reaffirms the notion that we only have, it's sad, you know, when you're when you're young and you're not cluttered up by the sort of pain of life yet, you can have a fantasy life that's really rich and ideal. And, you know, when you get older, it disappears and there's nothing you can do to get it back other than mystically becoming young again. I mean, that's really all <laughs> you can do is throw off your adulthood and actually become physically a, a child again. Other than that, it's just gone. The narrator at this point talks about how people are talking about giving Randolph's stuff away because, you know, his car was found, you know, on this hill and his his handkerchief was found out by these ruins, but nobody has found him. He's gone. Yeah. And the family are talking about taking all of his things and splitting him up, you know, to his heirs. And the, the narrator of the story says, you know, I don't think he should do that because I think he's going to someday come back, that he's, you know, off on some journey somewhere. I shall ask him when I see him. For I expect to meet him shortly in a certain dream city we both used to haunt. It is rumored in Ulthar, beyond the river Skye, that a new king reigns on the opal throne of Ilegvad, that fabulous town of turrets atop the hollow cliffs of glass, overlooking the twilight sea wherein the bearded and finny nori build their singular labyrinths. And I believe I know how to interpret this rumor. Certainly, I look forward impatiently to the sight of that great silver key. For in its cryptical arabesques, there may stand symbolized all the aims and mysteries of a blindly impersonal cosmos.
And that is the end of the that's, story. That's the end of it. I was very surprised what this story was, and uh, I, I found it definitely provocative. Yeah, me too. I mean, I you know I, I enjoyed it a lot. I don't think I. I mean, I clearly when I was going through the Lovecraft canon at an earlier age, I skipped it. I don't think that it's. Um, I don't think it's very inviting to a reader. I probably got a couple paragraphs in and said, "There's no monsters," and what the heck, and stopped reading it. And I, I think the readers of Weird Tales had a similar reaction when it was published. Yeah, Farnsworth Wright said that uh, that the, the audience violently disliked it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Lots of copies of that magazine being thrown across rooms. What? Violently disliked. I mean, how did, was there a, was there a riot that happened after yeah, it came out? There was or something? A, the Great Silver Key Uprising. <laughs> the, the thing about it is that the Dream Quest of Unknown Cadet, which is writing around this story, basically refutes it. I mean, in in, in Dream Quest, not to give away the end, but the end is. <laughs> that Boston and Randolph Carter's um, uh, New England, the actual physical world of Earth, yeah. is the dreamland, the, the the perfect sunset city that he's been seeing, yeah. and he quests through all of the dreamlands and discovers, you know, no Dorothy, you were you could go there all along, right? And this is Wizard of Oz, the, and the secret message of or the, the the moral of Dream Quest is that the dreamlands, nice as they may be are nothing compared to the real world, that the real world is where the actual magic exists. Mm. This story says the opposite. Right. And because it's presented as a sequel to Dream Quest, it vitiates the end of Dream Quest. Right? Yeah. It's like, you know, hurrah, Boston is the answer. Oh, no, it turns out Boston is full of boring, horrible churches and uh, radicals and occultists, and everything <laughs> is terrible, and I have to go back to being 10. And so I really, I, mean, I think just out of my, my love of Dream Quest, I think that this story, it just doesn't really belong. And, and so, you know, I don't know that I violently dislike it, but I don't think that I have any violent reaction to it at all. It, <laughs> it takes forever narratively. The philosophy, while useful for biographers or people who want to know what Lovecraft was thinking in November of 1926, it doesn't inform the stories because the stories go on to say, no, actually, the only important thing in the world is what we actually experience in it, right? I mean, yeah. that's Lovecraft's materialism, that yeah. there isn't any sort of magical dream city of Ulthar out there. The, 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 the actual you know temple underneath the Pacific Ocean or the actual ruins in Antarctica are the actual things that are going to come and eat us. And that's the bad stuff. Well, hey, then, I, uh, you know, it's good that we've inverted them and that we'll be covering Dream Quest later then because we'll get that. Uh, yeah. Yeah, but it's, I, it's, I, it's just what I, it really confuses me ultimately to what was going on in Lovecraft's mind at the time. You know, that is, is this is this how he really felt? And maybe Dream Quest is how he felt or he, what he thought people wanted to read? Well, you can't assume consistency with anybody. I mean, oh, yeah. he probably felt different ways at different times. Sure. I mean, I, I look at this one as this is the story that he writes um, when he's, he's come back from New York. He's in Providence. He's cuddled up, you know, in his, not his childhood uh, bedroom because that was sold. But yeah. he, he's cuddled up and he can see his childhood house every day. He desperately wants to get back to that, to, to redo his life, to fix everything because he's made a wreck of everything. He's got no career. He's got no prospects and he's living with his aunt and this is the story of how he's sort of defensively saying everything i did i had to do because i'm trapped in it right there's no reality there's no nothing means anything and i'm just gonna you know curl up in my in my bunk and and, and write this story and prove it but after he finishes this story he then finishes dream quest with the opposite realization yeah and then he puts mm -hmm. dream quest in the desk drawer forgets all about it and starts immediately i mean like you know a week later writing Charles Dexter Ward, which is also about going back into your childhood. It's also about, you know, all the things that this story is about, but it's about them, you know, from the perspective that 
going back into your childhood is terrible. That it's yeah. an awful yeah. idea. Yeah. <laughs> this is the worst thing that could possibly happen to you. And so, mm-hmm. you know, it's like uh, Charles Dexter Ward, which is, you know, easily the first or second greatest horror novel ever written, is like a refutation of of Silver Key, right? I mean, it's it's everything that Silver Key is, but 180 degrees around, and a, and it's also good. <laughs> it differs from this story in that it's good. Actually, rereading this for this uh, podcast, I sort of liked it a little bit better because I wasn't as mad at it, I guess. <laughs> I, my, my anger had faded. And it sort of began reminding me of those Ray Bradbury stories where it's all about how great it is to be 10 in rural Ohio or wherever. Right. Yeah, Illinois. So, and, you, and you go back and like Dandelion Wine or something wicked this way comes or all those sort of Bradbury uh, stories, which are also sort of horrible and scary when you when you read them. But have that sort of longing to regress. And, and so reading it as a Bradbury story, I, I think I liked it a little bit better. Yeah, that's, that's an yeah. interesting parallel. Because even, because even Lovecraft like, gives him an out, because now Randolph Carter in the present has escaped this time loop and is reigning as a king potentially in Ilek Vad. So yeah. even this story of how there is no escape except regressing into childhood, in the very last paragraph says, ah, screw that. <laughs> you can yeah. escape. You just have to, you know, find a silver key. <laughs> There you go. Well, uh, I think we have uh, beat this horse to death, the silver key. And uh, I want to thank you, Ken Hype, for for getting us through it. Your insight has been extremely helpful. And um, it's always a pleasure to have you on the show. Well, it was great to be asked. I, I'm happy to come any anytime. And like I say, anytime you want me to come for a good story, I'm happy to come. Uh-huh. Absolutely. Yeah, we'll have you for a good one, <laughs> yeah. too. Uh, we, I want to thank our uh, reader, Lance Holt. Lance is a, a Los Angeles uh, actor who uh, I've worked with on Whisper in Darkness on the movie. He had the part of the moderator at the debate in the beginning of Whisper in Darkness, which is due out this October. What a good actor, and, and we're really glad to have him uh, on the show for the first time, and we'll definitely be, you'll be hearing more of him. With that, I'm Chris Lackey. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. And this has been the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast. At hppodcraft.com. hppodcraft.com. <laughs>